Hi, everybody. My name is Jill. So I'm an alcoholic. Through the grace of God, Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I've been sober since April 24, 1986, and for that I'm very grateful. <laughs> It's an honor and a privilege to be here. I want to thank the committee for asking me, and especially to celebrate my sobriety birthday. I can't think of somewhere else I'd rather be than with you guys. Um, this is gorgeous. I was very impressed. You can tell the difference, but you know, when it's an Al-Anon function or an AA function, you guys do such a nice job. I'm going to get started. Um, I uh, was born with an abundance of character defects. Um, you know, and as I'm going through sobriety, one of the first things that happened was I got sober and I thought my life should get better. And it didn't, you know, because I was still doing the same stuff I was doing. I just took the drink away. And it's like, what is the deal here? You know, everything's supposed to be fixed. My family's supposed to be better, all this stuff. And, and I had to change myself. Well, all those same living character defects that caused me problems in my life were there as a little kid. You know, you didn't give me enough attention. You know, you didn't give me enough things to make me happy. You were always failing, falling short, you know. I knew. I was the expert. Um, and I began to do stuff like fly, which I became very good at, you know, to impress you so you like me. And a little kid at the bus stop, you know, telling like these lies to the other little kids so that you'd like me and go, wow, this girl's happening, you know. Um, and I would steal because I wanted stuff that you should be giving me that you weren't. That's why I had to steal. It was your fault. You know, if you would just buy me what I wanted, you know, I wouldn't have to resort to this. But, you know, I'll just take care of it myself. And I started doing those things, you know, those those things that I carry all through my life, you know, greed, selfishness, self-centeredness. Um, and was always very, uh, I was pretty wild. Um, in third grade, we got stickers. They were Officer Ugg stickers, and you're supposed to take them home to your parents and put them on all the poisonous items in the house, you know, so you knew what to stay away from. And um, so as we were doing that with my mom, I'm thinking, the bleach. I'm going to drink the bleach. That's when I can't stand it anymore. I'm down in that, you know, and I'm out of here. And I used to lay in my bed still with my eyes open, you know, and like breathe, try not to breathe, like my mom would walk by, pretend like I was dead, you know, <laughs> so that she'd like go in and, are you okay and stuff, it's like, and I would have these fantasies of, you know, when I drink that bleach and I'm out of here, won't they feel bad, and I'd visualize, you know, them standing around my bed going, if only we would have been nicer to Jill, she wouldn't have had to do this, if we were better parents, and if I was a you know, better brother, better friends, you know. But it was always you. My discontent with life had nothing to do with me. Um, I was adopted um, as a baby into this family of very uh, normal, wonderful, principled people who naturally work the 12 steps in their life. The principles that I've had to learn, they just live them. So I was born to these people who had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Um, so already as a kid, and I was taught, you know, my parents took me to church. My parents told me not to lie, not to steal, you know, be honest, think of others first, you know. <laughs> Don't say it if it's not nice. Keep your mouth shut, you know, be polite. I learned all that stuff, you know, but it didn't matter. Um, one night I felt guilty because I was stealing, and my parents said, you know, well, um, I, I fessed up, and they said, you need to pray to God and ask for forgiveness. And 
and or I was going to go to hell. And it's like, eh, you know, that doesn't sound like a fun alternative. So that's when God went out the window because I wasn't about to quit doing what I was doing. I like getting what I wanted, you know. It's like, see you, God, you know. You're no fun. And um, so I went out about my way. When I was um, in sixth grade, I came home and my brother was partying in the garage. I had an older brother. And he said, you know, come join us because he didn't want to get in trouble. So he thought he'd involve me. And um, and I loved it. And I was taught not to drink, not to smoke, not to do drugs. I was taught all that stuff, you know, and believed it for the minute. But how quick my value system goes out the window when it's something fun, something I want. And and I loved it immediately. And, and my drinking took off really, really fast. Um, and everything in my life. I never just stole a little. I stole a lot. I never just lied a little. It's like I find something that works for me and I'm just... Um, head into it and that's how my drinking was um, in seventh grade but I had this you know still this image of you know I'm okay on the outside the innocent look and stuff going for me which really helped a lot in those first few scrunches um, to support my habit I started dealing my brother was a drug dealer so I started dealing to the junior high and I got caught and so was the first time I got arrested was in seventh grade and so I have to go to the police station. I have to go to court. You know, and I go to my parents, you know. Oh, I'm weepy. I didn't know what it was. This girl gave it to me, asked me to give it to this other kid. I just, you know. And so they believe me, of course, you know. So they're like, oh, they feel sorry for me. And, and I'm suspended from school for two weeks, kicked off any activities, which I didn't care. It interfered with my partying anyway. It was like, supposed to be a consequence. And, um... I went shopping, and I had lunch when I was suspended because they, I was so wrongly accused, and they felt bad for me, you know. And my mind, my alcoholic mind, tells me. I begin to believe. It's like, you know, part of it, like, if I lie today, I feel guilty. It's like, you know it, you know, fidgety and stuff. Then it was like I believed what I said, you know. It was just smooth. It's like, yeah, I was wrongly accused. I mean, I could really get into it. I was living it, you know. My head was saying so. Um, so my parents, we had to go to court, I was put on probation, and my parents said what they were soon to say time after time after time after time. She's such a good girl. Um, it wasn't her fault. It's these kids she's hanging around. It's, you know, she's going to be okay. It's going to turn around. We're here. We love her. We support her. And it's never going to happen again. And it happened again, and it happened again, and it happened again. Um, these things began to interfere with my drinking, like my parents, for one, trying to impose, like, curfews. They were entirely too unreasonable. Um, so I began sneaking out of the house, and I would climb out my window, and I'd party all night, and I'd climb back in. Or I'd have people climb in my window when we'd party all night and have them climb back out in the morning. Um, my parents were not very, I mean, this is a family disease. They're, they coped with things through denial. They never would say, hey, you know, I think we had one conversation where they said, you need to do something. But they would uh, duct tape my window shut, you know, so I couldn't get out as a solution. You know, so I'd just go out there and peel off that duct tape, you know, and I'm still out. It's like, in the next, you know, few weeks later, my window is nailed to the sill. <laughs> it's like, you're not getting out of this window. And so I just started leaving. I'd tell him, I'm, you know, going out, seeing a few days, or, you know, I'm moving out. I was never running away. I, I'm moving out because you guys are so unreasonable. And I used to think that I was abused. 
as a kid because I had marks to prove it. You know, and I had, you know, my grandma came down and took pictures of, like, bruises on my arms and stuff because my dad was awful. He was a very abusive man, and you would drink, too, if you had a father like my father. And what the real story is, is I would say, I'm leaving. I'm, you know, all of 14, maybe. And he would say, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, it's late. You're going to bed and you're going to school. And he would stand at my door to try and keep me from leaving. And I would ram him. And I'd, you know, get in there and I'd ram him and I'd punch him and bite him and kick him and scratch him. And, and he would, you know, self-defense, grab my arm and, like, throw me on my bed or push me down or, you know, trying to keep me in my room. So I'd get bruises from him grabbing me because I'm ramming him, you know. And, but I'm the one being abused, you know. And I sold that for a long time, you know, and got a lot of sympathy. It's like, you would run away too if you had to live with my father because he's abusive. And I believed it because I had the marks to prove it. And it's like, well, poor guy had more marks on him. It's like, and I think today it's like, man, that man was a saint because if that was me, you know, <laughs> there would have been some abuse. It's like, I don't think I would have tolerated that. Um, but I, w I was terrible to him, but I believed in my head it was all his fault. You know, um, I could blame anyone. When I got arrested frequently for shoplifting, theft, um, whatever, I got arrested for some, you know, minor things, um, too, because they began to know me and not like me. Um, so there's Jill. Let's pick her up. Um, but it was always their fault, you know. I never once in my head connected that, when I broke the law, I got arrested. It was always, you know, I'm just minding my own business, doing my own thing, and they're coming here trying to mess with my life, you know, and I hated them. I hated the police, hated my parents, hated the people at school. I got suspended. I spent so much time in suspension, it's not even funny. Well, my parents are interfering with my drinking, so I move out for good instead of just my week stints or my weekend stints. And it's like, I'm out of here, I'm sorry, you know. You guys are just too intolerable. And so I move out. And I sleep wherever I can. It's warm. I slept in Greenbelt Park. I, the cops wanted me a lot, too, so I hid a lot. And I'd hide in the sewage tunnels down there. And I'd, I'd you know, walk around with my friends, and we'd be drinking. And I'd get tired. And I'd just fall asleep in cemeteries next to the foundation of your house. Didn't matter where it might be, you know. And just, you know, you could wake up, and there's some drunk girl laying in your yard. It's like, here I am. Um, but, and it's again, the disease of perception. Alcoholism affects my mind, and it tells me that this is all right. You know, it tells me, you're the queen of Des Moines. This is my land to roam, you know. It's like this grizzly Adams perception. It's like the wild frontier. It's never, you know, you're homeless, you know, you have the same clothes on every day for a week. Maybe you want to get some new ones. It's like, I'm the queen. And that's what I thought. It's like that's how my mind works. And I also, part of this disease, is when I take one drink, I want more. It's not the last drink that gets me. It's that first one. I get alcohol into my system, and it says more. That more goes in a lot of areas of my life because I feel a little something, and it says, you deserve more, you know. I get a little bit of anything, and my mind says, no, more. <laughs> more is always better. Um, so here I am, I'm living on the streets. My brother, the drug dealer, is starting to come to me and be concerned. Um, and he says, you need to stay in school. 
so he's picking me up at the house and and taking me to trying to keep me in school and he said you know uh, your life is falling apart you're going to end up in jail you're going to end up in the hospital my parents had took me to many psychiatrists psychologists trying to find out what was wrong with me I mean I was crazy I carried butcher knives and meat cleavers with me. I started to get really violent. When I lived at home with my dad, one of the times he tried to keep me in, I chased him around with a butcher knife, and I had every intent to kill him. I wanted him to die. That's how my heart had gotten so close, so dark, so black, so ugly, and I did not care. And they were taking me, trying to get help, and the, the psychiatrist would diagnose me with mental illnesses, and they would say, you need to um, institutionalize her, and my dad didn't want to do that. And so they'd keep, he'd switch, and we'd go to a different person and a different person. And they'd always ask me, you know, do you drink? Do you do drugs? No. <laughs> it was this awful life that I grew up with, and if you were raised the way that I was raised, you would be crazy too. And I also, I'm, part of that was appealing. It's like, you know, they think I'm crazy. They want to lock me up, you know. What an excuse for all the stuff that I'm doing, you know. I thought, because I became very violent. The kids I ran around with, we'd get in fights with knives and guns and, and stuff like that. And I thought, you know, well, if I ever do kill someone, I'll be, I'm crazy, you know. I have this out, you know. So I even used that to my advantage with the crazy stuff I was doing. My brother, you know, was not only scared for my lifestyle, but I had no ethics in my drug dealing. That was a big concern of his. Because he was ethical. He sold quality drugs. And I wasn't. It's like, I needed money. I wanted some vodka, loved tequila, needed it. You know, and I have some parsley, you know. <laughs> I sell it to you. I sold birth control pills of speed, you know. It's like, they pop out the white ones. It's like, I would do anything to get the money, you know, to get what I needed. I didn't care. And he didn't, didn't understand that. And he'd take me to school. And I had problems at school because the principal, you know, wanted me to go to class. And that was far too unreasonable. I had to go across the street and, you know, do whatever, drink a little bit, smoke a little pot, do whatever so I could make it through the day. And I would come to school, and my head would be like this because I would be so hungover or drunk. And he would look, call me into his office, and he'd say, well, I'd also sleep in class and, or pass out, I don't know. And he'd say, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? And I would say to him, you know, you're my problem. You know, why don't you just get out of my face? And we'd, I'd yell at him. And, um, I would tell him he had a pacemaker and he, you know, threatened me to, that he was going to kick me out of school or whatever. And I'm like, you know, well, I'm going to show up tomorrow with the microwave and I'm going to put it in your office or the garage door opener. And, and I was evil. You know, this guy was trying to help me. Anybody that tried to help me, I was after because, you know, that, you were in trouble. Um, I got to the point, so that was it with my school, you know, deal because he didn't like that very much. And um, asked me to leave, and I kind of quit at the same time, you know, and left. And so I'm not living at home. I'm living on the streets. Kind of, I had a main house of people where the adults was in the psych ward, and all of us kids kind of lived there and hung out. And um, it was lovely. And I'd also, you know, if you had a party at your house, I'd show up, you know. I'd never leave. I'm here. You know, you'd have to ask me to leave. I'd sleep there, you know, next morning I'm hanging out. You know, it's like I would just stay wherever. You know, you're going to have to leave now. Um, I just kind of floated. 
it got to the point where I was drinking every morning. And we were talking not too long ago about willing to go to any lengths for my sobriety and that I need to go after that like I did my drinking. Because, you know, it might be a little snowy, and I don't think I want to go to the meeting tonight. I better just stay home and, and be all snug. It's nasty out there. Um, and uh, Or different reasons why I think. And I think about what I did when, or I'm a little sick, I might have a little cold and I better stay home, um, can't do this. And I think about what I did when I was drinking. I lived in this house that was in Windsor Heights, and there was a little grocery store called Hossie's. And every morning, I'm not in school, so this is my daily routine. It's winter time now. And I would get up and I'd put my boots on and, and stuff, and I might be sick and I might be hungover or maybe I didn't sleep last night, and I would walk up to the grocery store. And I had my coat big coat and it was hollow and it had holes in the pockets and I'd go through the grocery store and just put them, you know, fill up my my coat with stuff and I had an empty purse and I would steal a gallon of red wine and take it home and I would drink it and I would buy a little bit of food, you know. Food wasn't important, you know. Mind you, it's like I gotta have cigarettes, I gotta have my wine, you know, and and I would do that every day. Um, and I lived with drug dealers and all kinds of stuff. And one of the things I talked about at one time was I had this cat. I borrowed it um, from somebody's yard. And uh, <laughs> I took it to this house. It was my cat. And I was like in this, this is in the punk rock era. I mean, I had shaved my head. I had a pink rat tail. I had these bangs that I, I kept over my face because I didn't want you to see my eyes because I was either stoned or I loved acid, too. It's like I was always tripping out, you know, and it was better if you could not see them. Um, and I had black hair back here and, like, little stair steps. And I mean, it was it was wild. And I thought this cat would look cute if it looked like me. And so, <laughs> and I love cats today, this poor cat, but I thought I was doing a favor. But I, so I, we just, it was food coloring, but I was dyeing the cat green and all this stuff. And, <laughs> My hair, we matched. I don't know whatever happened to that cat. Um, so another thing is, for some reason, um, well, and I, you know, was involved in relationships. Guys was another thing. It's like, just like the alcohol, you know, you had something to offer to make me feel better. And um, uh, they always happened to be, you know, like drug dealers or a lot older than me and could buy alcohol. There was some little niche in there. You had something I wanted, you know, access to, to what I wanted to make me feel good. And what happened in, in high school, and this, this guy was a popular kid. Now, I was not, like, popular material. I was grungy, dirtbag. That was my type of niche, you know. Um, and this popular guy asked me out on a date, and I couldn't believe it. He was, you know, a nice-looking guy. We go to this valley game, and um, he drank and partied a little bit, but he was a good kid, good grades. And I'm drinking. You know, we're doing drugs, partying a little bit, and I'm drinking, and it's cold, and I'm drinking this purple stuff, and I get sick, and I puke. And I puke all over myself, and it freezes. So I have purple frozen puke on myself. It's our first date. We're at this football game, and my dad's coming to pick me up, you know, and it's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? Oh, and I also, oh, I don't even want to say that. That's embarrassing. So anyway, <laughs> I don't want to divulge too much. My dad picked me up, and I have to lie about, you know, well, it was the hot dog that I ate and stuff. I reek of this alcohol and whatever. He just takes me home. And this guy asked me out again. You know, it's like, so what does that say about him? But 
you know, and then about six months into that, his friends came to me and they said, Jill, leave him alone. Get away from him. Do you know you're ruining his life? Because he started running away from home and started skipping school and started hanging out with me. Um, and they said, stay away from him, you know. And so, uh, but he needs me. They didn't understand either. I was really good for him. It was, you know, he didn't need school or family or any of that, you know. They're just interfering in his life. So he moved in with me, and we lived in this house, and we were in charge of these kids, and the adult was still in the psych ward, and I, I, I provided. I'd go, you know, steal a little bit of food from Hossie's. Well, it wasn't enough, so we were going to go rob this gas station down on 8th Street, which is no longer a gas station. Um, and uh, they, we had a gun. We were going to go do this. And they left me to stay home. Two guys went. They left me to stay home because there were some little kids living in this environment, too. And they got busted and went to prison. And it's like, eh, that could have been me. Right about this time, I'm starting to have some clarity. And it's like, my friends were getting locked up, you know. And some of them weren't as bad as me. And, and my friends were dying. And some of them, you know, weren't as crazy as I was. And I'm thinking, I knew. I knew that I was an alcoholic. I knew that I was going to die. And it's like, well, you know, I didn't know that there was a solution. I'd been sober. Those years as a kid, you know, when I was thinking about the bleach, you know, I had that. I didn't want that. I was ready to go out. I knew it was life or death. And it's like, well, we'll drink, I'll party hard, and I'll die. And that's what that's what I set out to do. And what happened with that train of thought is I really went nuts because I don't have to pay any consequences. You know, I'm going to be dead. So I have the freedom to do whatever. And one of the things that happened is uh, I was drinking vodka with this gal from school. And we bonded, and you know how that goes. She became my best friend, and I loved her. And, and she was telling me about this guy that had raped her in Iowa City. And it's like, that guy deserves to die, and I was the woman to take care of it for her. And, and I had plotted this out. I was going to kill this man because he deserved to die because he was evil. And I'm going to die anyway, so why not? I mean, this is the way my thinking is. And so I planned to get this gun from this guy. I'm going to buy this gun, and I'm going to go up to Iowa City. I had my ride. I had my plan. I had everything set up, well, I couldn't get a hold of this gun dealer. I couldn't get a hold of him. Um, and so I thought, you know, well, you know, a knife works fine. So um, I was still planning on doing this. And what happened is, like, just a few days before I'm to leave to go and do this, I get picked up again for theft. What had happened is, he caught up with me. I, I had been partying at the mall, and I was really drunk. You know, and normally I was a pretty good thief, but under these circumstances, I was walking in the stores and grabbing a lamp, don't know why I needed a lamp, but needed the lamp, and I'd walk out, I'd just walk out, you know, and I'd be putting them in the lockers in the mall, and, you know, I need this mirror, I live on the street, don't know why I need a mirror, <laughs> and I'd, I was just, you know, and so what happened is, you know, the security guards came, <laughs> they didn't like me just walking in and out of these stores, and I thought I was being sneaky, and um, so... The security guards came, and I dropped some of the stuff I had, shattered on the floor. They're coming. One of the guys I'm with, you know, like, whips me over his shoulder and is running down the mall, and I'm bouncing on his shoulder. I'm looking the security guards, running behind, trying to catch him. They knew who I was. I'd been arrested so many times. I don't know what my escape meant. They're going to catch me. Well, you know, my mind, I'm, like, in such a fog. I'm so out of touch with reality. It's not even funny. I mean, I went back to the mall like the next day and was just sitting there and they arrested me. <laughs> you know, but my mind doesn't say, I forget. I mean, I was 
such a glue head. And part of that is I drank a lot. I drank every day, and, and I loved wine. I drank it. I loved tequila. I drank that. But I did whatever. If I didn't have money, we would break into people's garages and huff paint thinner. And I think that was bad. I think I burned off some brain cells doing that. But I mean, I have a whole summer I don't remember, you know, and I think that's why. And I, for a while I'm going, Kim, I have Alzheimer's. I keep forgetting stuff. But you know, it might be that paint thinner. <laughs> Too much that. But so I was in just a fog, so they arrest me and I go to jail and they call my parents and they say, you know, we have her again. And my dad said, I don't want her. You know, you get her, you keep her. I don't want anything to do with her. They had done that so many times. They'd get me out of jail. They'd take me to court. They'd say, she's gonna, it's gonna be different this time. And, um, and it wouldn't be. And I just kept hurting them, kept hurting them, kept hurting them. Well, so they're trying to decide what to do with me. I was already on probation, like, twice, and then another offense. And um, my mom had multiple sclerosis. She got diagnosed with it when I was eight years old, and she had a nurse that would come in and help take care of her during the day. Well, this nurse heard that I was in jail and came and got me out and took me home with her. And she started talking about, she lived out in California, and she talked about growing pot fields and drinking and the partying and the wild stuff she was doing. I thought, this woman is cool. And I started sharing her with her, my stuff, you know, and my wild things and, and what was going on. I thought she was really neat. And I went to sleep, and the next morning she woke me up, and she said, Jill, I'm a recovering member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think that you have a problem, and I'm taking you to treatment. And she took me to treatment and left me there. And um, it's like I'm forever, now I'm forever grateful for this woman. And what happened was my parents didn't want me ever to be institutionalized, whether it was in a treatment center for anything or um, for the insane, which was what the psychiatrist always wanted. Um, and my parents were quite upset. And they, uh, they fired her. I've never seen this woman since. By the time I got out of the institutions I was soon to be in, she had moved from Des Moines. And it's like I owe this woman my sobriety. We never know who we're going to touch. You know, I'm sure when she took that job working for my parents, I bet she had no idea that she was going to save my life. I hope someday I run into her. I have a picture of her. I remember her name. And it's like someday when I'm traveling at an event, it's like I hope to God I see her because I really want to thank her, you know, what she did for me. Because I wouldn't have came. I didn't know about Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know about a better way of life. I had no clue. Um, if she would not have been there, I would have ended up in prison in the same asylum or drank myself to death. That's where I was headed. And so I get to treatment. And this was Grant you just a few days before I was supposed to go to Iowa City and kill this poor guy. And uh, I get up there, and my gun dealer's up there. He's in treatment. That's why I couldn't get a hold of him. It's like, hey, you know, he's up there with me. And so it's like, you know, <laughs> thank God. I saw him there. And, and the biggest thing I remember about being in treatment is, uh, well, I remember I went through really bad withdrawals. I had to spend time in the emergency room because it was not, it was not pretty. And the thing, I was so numb, not only emotionally and mentally numb, <laughs> bad, but physically. And I went to the nurse and said, I have a headache. And I, you know, I was hallucinating, but I thought that, that was, I did that quite often because I took so much acid. I just, even into my first year of sobriety, I would just, if I'd get really stressed out or something, I'd start having flashbacks. So that was nothing. I'm hallucinating. 
I just think it's a little flashback thing going on. I have a little bit of a headache. Well, I end up passing out because I have a fever of 104, and I'm hallucinating. I'm going through all this stuff, and I have to rush me to the emergency room. I did not know I was sick. You know, I physically, you know, I could get in fights then because it didn't hurt. I mean, physically, I was numb. I, I didn't have the sensation. Today, it, like, it hurts. You know, it's like, no, you know. Um, but then it didn't. Um, and the biggest thing I remember, so I'm glad that I was in the hospital. Some people are like, come straight into AA or whatever, but it says in our big book, some people need hospitalization. And I have seen people in Alcoholics Anonymous die going through the DTs. Oh, it's just the shakes. You know, there was a young kid at the names not that long ago that was going through the DTs and he died of heart failure in his home. You know, it says, go get checked out. Go, go to your doctor, you know. Um, because we get really sick and you don't know what some of these people are coming off of. Um, so the biggest thing I remember about treatment is I wasn't alone. I always felt alone my whole life. It's like spaceship dropped me off. I had nothing to do with you guys. Didn't understand you. I was by myself. And all of a sudden I was with all these other Martians that felt the same way. And it's like, well, at least we're in this together, you know. They felt awkward, lonely, you know, crazy, angry frustrated, all that stuff. I mean, and they had been different circumstances, but they had been there. We all drink differently. You know, some of us, like, drink at home and pass out in the closet and, and never really, like, go out and cause havoc. And some of us cause havoc, and some of us get arrested, and some of us don't. And some people drink, you know, all the time. Some people drink. But if it causes a problem, you're in the right place. And we all drank for the same reason, to try and fill this hole here and try and be okay and try and be someone. But at some point, it quits working. Um, and it turns around, and it's going to kill us. Um, so I surrendered. Somebody told me, you know, here you have a chance for a little bit of happiness. And I wanted that. It's like I was willing to go to any length. I knew I was going to die. Um, and I didn't know what happiness was, but I was sure, you know, not to get it. And I, they told me to get down on my knees and pray. It's like I had nothing to do with God for a long time. I wasn't about to get down on my knees. And they said, you know, if you want to stay sober, you need to do this. And I was willing to do even the things that I hated, that I thought I didn't want to do, but sobriety meant that much. And I got down on my knees and I started praying and asking God for help. And it was awkward, and I felt like I was just praying to the air, and what's this going to do anyway? And that was my attitude, but I did it anyway. And after a few weeks of doing that, I was like, I started to feel better. Don't know why. You know, still I can't explain God to you, but it works. You know, I do these things. I have no idea why, but it, but they work. Um, people, I went to... Well, here's where I thought, you know, I'm sober now. I know what my problem is. And my parents came up to visit me for, like, family day or whatever. And they were there, like, two minutes. And we're screaming and yelling. And they get escorted out. And I'm like, what's wrong here? I'm sober. Life's supposed to be grand, you know. And the problem was me. I'm still doing the same stuff, you know. I wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for them and the way they raised me and, and all this stuff. Well, it's still seeking to blame others. And, you know, why I had such a poor relationship with God besides the fact that I was doing everything unprincipled in my life, but I would blame you for everything in my life. But if it was something that I couldn't blame you for, you know, that it's not above a human power, you know, like, then it was God's fault, you know. It's like if I'm sick, obviously I can't blame that on you, but, but it's God's fault. He should have, you know, made something not happen or 
Um, so it was always someone else's fault. So God was just as big a scapegoat. And, you know, you gave me this crappy life. You know, it's your fault. And so here I am surrendering and have to ask for help. And they told me that you cannot keep you sober. I tried to keep myself sober. I tried to quit before and found out the results is I was not very happy when I quit. It was not pleasant. I tried to quit for good reasons. I tried to quit for this woman that I just loved dearly who was sober and recovering, and I wanted to keep her in my life. She was my world. You know how we take hostages? She was my one friend. You know, she was mine, and she got sober, and I knew if I wanted this woman in my life, I had to quit too. And I tried, and I made it two weeks, and I thought, yeah, she's not that important anyway. You know, and that was it. Um, she's history. Everything was like that, you know. Um, but I could quit if I really wanted to. I just don't really want to. I don't know how many times I'd say that because people would come to me all the time and say, you need to, your life's a mess. And I'd say, I can quit. When it gets really bad, I'll quit. Um, and that day, you know, never came. So here I am. I'm sober. Things are not good with my parents. They decide to send me to a, a halfway house in Ames instead of home because they, things are very troubled there. And that was the first time I worked the third step because I did not want to go to Ames and I did not want to go to a halfway house and I was tired of being, you know, institutions and, and I said, God, I want to stay sober more than anything in the world. If, if this is what I need to stay sober, then, then let it be. And I left. It was the first time I ever turned anything over to the care of God and left it out of my hands. But I can't, you know, I was a little disappointed when they said, we're sending you to Ames and a halfway house, but I was willing to go because I knew. I, I had faith that if that's what I needed to do to stay sober and I was willing to do it. But, you know, a little bit of my will, it's like, well, I'm going to miss Des Moines. So I ran away for 24 hours and just kind of cruised around, you know, and then came back. And, and uh, in my pajamas, I ran away to, like, the Burger It wasn't Lutheran Hospital, to the Burger King down there. And I was calling my friend on the phone to come pick me up. And the, the gal behind the cash register goes, did you just run from OPP? <laughs> you know, <laughs> she's been there, too. You know, she's like, I have some of those pajamas, you know. <laughs> So I cruised around. I slept in Greenbelt Park one last time, and my brother brought me back the next day, and I didn't drink. And I ran with about six other kids, and me and this other gal, Tracy, stayed sober because we really wanted to stay sober, and everyone else drank. I just wanted to, you know, go on a little tour and have some fun and freedom because I knew, you know, I was not going to have much of that. And I'm rebellious. It's like I want to do what I want to do. I don't like people telling me what to do. I still don't like people telling me what to do. Um, so I go up to this halfway house, and um, I, they, we start going to AA meetings, and some of my friends for treatment are up there, um, and they're telling me to get involved. And I went into foster homes. Things with my parents were still not pretty. They'd come up, and we'd fight all the time. And I said, you know, if I'm going to stay sober, I don't need this pain and agony in my life. You know, they're causing, you know, it's always tears and anger, and, and I just, I'm going to drink. If I keep going, so, so I said, you know, I don't have a family. See ya. Don't want anything to do with you. And I was done. I, my first uh, few years of sobriety, I didn't have anything to do with my family because it hurt. It caused pain. Problem in my life, go away. And I went to a lot of meetings, and I got a sponsor, and I started going through the steps, and um, my sponsor disappeared. She left AA. And... What, if your sponsor leaves AA, if your sponsor drinks, my suggestion is that you get another sponsor, um, and which is what I did. And it was kind of a, Kim had just 
come back from Wichita, Kansas, back to Ames, Iowa, and I didn't even know her, but my friend Joelle said, because I didn't know who, there was not very many women in Alcoholics Anonymous, and a lot of the women in Ames at that time had men sponsors. I don't suggest that. I suggest because a lot of bad stuff happened because these women had men sponsors and like the weirdest of circumstances, like really, you know, huge age gaps and married kids and, and it didn't matter. I mean, it's like I just really, you know, if I can suggest anything, it's women work with women and men work with men. And um, so uh, Kim had just moved back and Joel said, you know, gave me her phone number and said, call this woman, had no idea who she was, but I called her and said, I need a sponsor. And she said, why do you want me to sponsor you? Why do you don't ask that? I'm terrified. I just want to stop her. I don't know. You know, or why did I ask her? That's what she asked me. <laughs> I made something up. I'd never met her before. I just wanted her to sponsor me. I've heard you talk in meetings, and I really got a lot out of it and stuff. But we started with <laughs> it. didn't start off very honest, but at least she sponsored me, you know. And my life really began to change. My first um, couple of years in sobriety, I had a really nice sponsor, loved her death. She was like a friend. She had me over for dinner all the time. She loved me. She um, loved me a lot. And I needed that, I think, to stick around. And, you know, I was really rebellious when I first came in. Well, she never, like, called me on my stuff, though. Um, and what happened when I got Kim is she did, you know, and at first it really, you know, hurt my feelings and made me mad because she'd say, I don't care what that person's doing. What are you doing? What's that? You know, I'm doing this because of them. No, you're not. You know, why take responsibility for your own life? It's like, what a concept. I had never done that ever. And I tell you what, if you're incapable of taking responsibility for your own life, your life is never going to get better, whether you have 10 years of sobriety or one day or whether you're still drinking, because I need that to change. If I cannot look at my life, even, you know, there's a lot of times where it's justifiable. It's like someone really hurt me. Kim's going, yeah, I think I really need to teach them a lesson or, or, or do whatever, but I can't do that. It's my life. It's my happiness. No one is responsible for my happiness, you know, but me, you know. Um, early in sobriety, I think of the poor girls that I sponsor, and it's like I'm like, you know, when, when they're going through stuff, because I always forget what I was like as a newcomer. I was a sick newcomer. I was really sick. Because I still had that fog. I was in a fog for a long time. You know, I sponsor people who are at three days of sobriety, and they're sharp. You know, I was not like that. And I was still doing the same stuff. I was still stealing. I was still lying. I was still at, you know, I'm in this halfway house, and I have three, four months of sobriety, and we go on this field trip to the grotto, and... Uh, I'm looking around, and there's this necklace with a crucifix on it, and I think that's pretty cool, and I think I want it, but I don't have any money, so I take it. Put it in my pocket, go back to the halfway house, you know, and don't even think anything of it. I mean, I'm still doing this stuff. And I pull it out of my pocket when I get home, and Jesus' arm and leg broke off, and, and it was like that reality. I get these, like, revelations, and it was like a revelation. It's like, oh, my God, I need to quit feeling. It's not right, you know. But, I mean, that's what it took. I mean, I didn't, I needed to be walked through this stuff. I didn't come in and say, I was still hitting people in sobriety. Um, at school, I'm going to this new high school and stuff, and I didn't like the people that I went to high school with. Now, they're talking about makeup and prom and dresses and football and, you know, and I'm thinking, I don't like them, you know. And this guy came up and, like, 
Well, he did something inappropriate in the hallway, but I punched him in the nose. Um, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Um, I was dating a guy, and he stood me up once, and I was telling him how mad that made me, and I punched him in the forehead. I didn't, it was supposed to be a tap. <laughs> Just a little tap, but it was a little bit more forceful. I didn't know that you're not supposed to hit people anymore. You know, you make, someone makes you mad, you hit them. You know, you want something, you steal it. I had to be walked through every little thing, you know. It's, I was a slow grower, you know. It, it, maybe about two years of sobriety, some of the fog lifted, and I was able to, you know, do some stuff. But it, two years of sobriety, and I said I was loved into sobriety, and I wasn't changing me, and it was everyone else's fault. And I tell you what, when I was at that place, at about two years of sobriety, I was sitting in my foster mom's home, and I had a razor blade and I had it up to my wrist and I was sitting in my room and I was thinking, I don't talk about this very much, but I've had several of those times in sobriety where if I'm at the crossroads, what are you going to do? Well, drinking is not an option for me because I know what I do when I drink is I try and hurt people. I'm violent. I'm dangerous. I don't want to do that. You know, so I'm sitting there with the razor blade at my wrist thinking I'm just going to end it because I can't take this anymore. And what happened is I showed up at my good friend Randy's doorstep, and I love him. He has Bob's sobriety birthdays today, too, and so is Randy's. We got sober on the same day in treatment. And I love him dearly. And I showed up at his doorstep, and I'm bawling. And it's like I can't live in my own skin anymore. I can't take it. And he had me come in, and he made me breakfast, you know, and, and he said it's time to get busy, you know. And it was time to get busy, changing, active, trying to be of service. This is what I, you guys were doing for me. It was not about what I can do for you guys. I was going to meetings, visiting your groups, you know. Oh, how are you going to serve me, you know? It's like I, I was trying to start giving back. Simple things. Show up at the meeting a half hour early. Stay a half hour late. When the meeting is over, pick up your chair and put it away. Pick up two other chairs. I know it's not your... I, I just used one. I only need to put mine away. You know, I have no concept of giving, you know. Pick up a couple other chairs. Simple things like that. I had no clue. I had no idea how to be of service to someone else. If I did something for you, it was because in my head I'm going, did that? That means that when I ask them to do this, they're going to have to see it because they owe me. You know, I never gave for fun and for free. That was a foreign concept, and it was taught to me. Everything I've learned in my sobriety was taught to me. None of it, I just, you know, was sitting around one day thinking <laughs> and came up with this. Like, when I'm sitting around thinking, it's scary. Clear the room, you know. It's not not good. It is not good. Um, so here I am in sobriety, and I have a sponsor, and, and she gets me active, and she is very active, and she is an example. And just recently I heard, where are we at with our enthusiasm? Because... It's amazing because I became enthusiastic because she was. She'd say, let's go to this road trip and go hear the speaker, this great speaker. And I'd be like, yeah, because she looked like she was excited about it and I became excited about it. She'd be like, let's go to Bridge the Cap. It's this really neat thing and we're going to help new people. And she was excited about it, so I'd get excited about it. You know, it rubs off. You know, it's like if I had a sponsor that was going, well, I know you're going to hate this, but you're going to go do this treatment thing because you got to get back. I'd be like, oh, I don't want to, but here I go. You know, it's like the enthusiasm. Thank God I had that. My friends had it, and I had peers, and they were doing that. And I always tell the girls I sponsor, watch people in the program. Watch them. 
see what they're doing, not what they're saying. saying. I can learn from what people saying, but I learn most from what people are doing. And what I saw is I got sober with a lot of people and I saw a lot of people drink. And I got sober with a lot of people and I saw a lot of people die. This is a deadly illness and it does not matter where you come from, what walk of life, if you're a man or a woman, if you're older, if you're young. Because a friend of mine two months out of the halfway house started drinking again in Nevada and she passed out over the train tracks and the train came and it killed her. When I was in the halfway house, a friend of mine at Valley that I used to party with was, you know, wanting to get high and he huffed um, stuff in the photo department and it stopped his heart instantly. Um, my best friend, I came back to Des Moines and wanted to help him. He was just like me and I tried to take him to a meeting and he came to one meeting with me and over to someone's house and he didn't get it and he hung himself. And um, that would be me. I mean, that's there's more. I mean, I could talk for half an hour of all the stuff that, and I was calling Kim, and it's like another one's dead. And um, and I would think, why me? You know, why did God save me and not these other people? And it's like, I don't know, but I'm grateful today. It's like, you know. But, you know, another thing I've been thinking about lately is gratitude. Every night when I go to bed, I thank God for the gift of my life. Sometimes it's from the heart, sometimes it's from the head. I wish it was from the heart all the time, but I do that because I do not deserve the things that I have in my life. And I forget that. But just, you know, this last year, I've been thinking about this last year because it's my birthday. And this last year has been crazy, and, and I want to thank Kim for sponsoring me through this last year because I know it hasn't been fun for her. <laughs> and uh, um, I, a bunch of stuff happened. My my mom uh, got sick and we had to put her in a nursing home and I love my mom more than anyone else in this world. I love her so much and that's the last thing in the world I wanted to do because I don't like nursing homes. <laughs> and I, I know what that means when she goes in there. She's never coming back and I don't want that to happen and I put her in the nursing home and it killed me and then I found out I was pregnant and I quit smoking. And uh, so I'm not. <laughs> I'm pregnant and I am not smoking. I'm crazy and my mom's going in the nursing home and, and I don't like that and I'm upset and I go to see her and then she doesn't like that she's going in the nursing home either and she gets stressed out and throws a fit and has seizures and we have to rush her to the emergency room and she's unconscious for four days and we don't know if she's going to regain consciousness and and uh, we get her back to the nursing home and it wasn't just very much after that and I had a miscarriage and um, and it's like this stuff is happening. You know, and it's like, and I was, I was mad, and I was mad at God, and I was mad at, I don't know, everybody. I just got back into the blame, you know. I don't want this. It's like, God, why are you doing this to my mom, you know. He's not, you know, but I mean, I just got into that, and it's like, I didn't, didn't have, do it with joy, but it's like, I sponsorship. If you don't have a sponsor, get one, because... You know, I still had someone to be accountable to, even though I didn't want to be, you know. <laughs> I still, I kept going to my meetings, and I kept, it was not with joy or enthusiasm, and I wasn't thinking, uh, here, I'll jump more into service work, but I was doing what I was being at service, and I was going to meetings, and I was sponsoring people, and I was calling my sponsor, and I was doing those basic things I knew, and what happened is I got through it. One of the things, I never have to be alone. Kim was there. You know, my sister pigeons were there. The girls that I sponsor were there. I was not alone. Um, my husband. Um, 
so it's like I, I made it through that. That was this last year. Well, so life happens, people, in sobriety or not in sobriety. The difference is that in sobriety, I can deal with it a little bit better because I'm a runner. You know, when my mom gets sick, I run. I don't want to, it hurts. I don't want to deal with it. I'm out of here. Let's move to California so I don't have to be here and deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis because I don't like seeing her waste away. It hurts my feelings. Well, in sobriety, my feelings don't matter, you know? Who cares about my feelings? I need to be of service to my family. So even though, you know, however I feel about it, I show up at least twice a week and I see my mom and I talk to her. She's getting worse. Sometimes she can't talk. I can't understand what she's saying. But I go in there and I've taught to be a service. And I was taught when I was, you know, young and rebuilding that relationship with my family to set the table you know, and to do these things. And what I do now is I go there and I practice the same simple little things. I curl her hair. I put makeup on her. I wipe her face clean. You know, I hold her hand and I rub her hand and I talk to her. And, uh, you know, it's like, what a joy. I mean, that I could actually be this. That's not me. I did not know what responsibility is. If it wasn't fun, I didn't do it. I took that into early sobriety, too. Like, if it was not fun, forget it. You know, I'm not picking up that chair. It doesn't sound like a good time to me. I'm going to go, you know, we would car surf after the meetings, you know, and we would talk through the meetings. I think about they drive me crazy now. It's like, you're in a meeting, don't talk, you know, show respect. Look at the speaker. Well, I, you know, sat through the meetings, and we'd be talking the whole time about what we were going to do after the meeting. You know, hard to recover when you're doing that. Um, so, and that was the basic meeting etiquette. My sponsor taught me that as well. She said, you know, look at the person that's talking when they're talking. Don't, I used to draw on my cups, too, artist in me, you know, doodle, and she'd quit doing that, <laughs> you know. Um, and to share for a few minutes and, and not for an hour and take up everyone else's time. And um, etiquette, show up early, you know, say hi to my sponsor, talk to other people. My first, one of my first jobs was as a greeter. I was terrified of people. I got sober. I was scared of you guys. And what happened is I was supposed to greet. I didn't want to greet. I'm scared, you know, but I'm there and I'm greeting. And what happens when I'm doing that is I'm thinking about you instead of me, you know. And so all of a sudden I feel comfortable. All of a sudden it's my group. All of a sudden I like you. You're not so scary. And I still need to do that. The root of my problem. I am self-centered. I need help, you know. And it's the slogans, I was going to try and talk about those, but one day at a time was the biggest thing I used through sobriety, not taking a drink one day at a time. When I'm going through a hard ordeal in my life, to think I could deal with this one day at a time. When I look at the whole big picture, it's overwhelming and I want to give up. But one day at a time I can get through this, or one minute at a time I can get through this. Um, live and let live. It was easy for me to do that in the beginning of my sobriety because I was had really low self-esteem and was scared of you and anything you did was fine. Well, after I started to recover a little bit, that changed. I used to read that part in the big book where it said the world's a stage and I want to, you know, put people where they need to be and control everything and I never related to that and it's like, thank God you're supposed to keep reading the big book, you know, you don't read it once and quit. So, because, you know, three years later I'm reading it and it's like, that's me, you know, because I was feeling better and stuff and all of a sudden I knew what you should be thinking, doing, acting, and if you were only doing what I knew you should be doing, everything would be fine, you know. That's not a very happy place to be because 
I, don't, I can't control people. I can't control people, places, things. I have no control over anything except for my actions. I don't have control over my feelings. I don't have control over my thoughts. I have control over my actions. Um, when I got to the third step, it was explained that willingness is not a feeling. I had no idea that it wasn't. I didn't do stuff because I didn't feel like it. And so I'd say I'm not willing because I don't feel like it. And it's like, no, willingness is not a feeling. You do it whether you feel like it or not. Today I have commitments in my life, and I do them whether I feel like it or not. Um, and that's my willingness. You know, even when stuff's going on in my life, I still get to my meetings. I still try and be of service. I still try and do those basic things. Um, excuse me. I don't know why I got all stuffy. Um, when I got Kim as a sponsor, one of the things she did that I'm most grateful for is she said, you'll quit running for your, from your family and you will start calling him. And uh, I thought, you know, I don't have a family, excuse me, you know, I divorced them, I don't need them. And, and uh, she said, you call and you just talk to him for a little bit and you get off the phone if it starts to get uncomfortable. And then pretty soon it was, you go down and visit him and you just stay for 20 minutes, but while you're there, quit talking about yourself and start asking him about them. Because I, w I wouldn't go there and said I need money, you know. Um, how's it going? Well, whatever, I'd complain about something, you know. It's like no wonder we were having problems, you know. And so I was told to go down there and say, how are you doing? And when they asked about me to say, I'm doing great and tell them something good in my life instead of complaining. Um, and to set the table and have dinner and do that stuff. And it was full. And this is... You know, it says in the big book, when you have a resentment, to pray for the person, for their happiness, health, prosperity, that they may have everything that you want out of life. And I did this, and it says two weeks, and I still have my resentment. But I kept doing it every night, and I prayed for my father for two years. And, and, I, and I took action, because I can pray till I'm blue in the face, but I need to take action, too. You know, the things work together. I can't take action without God's help because I don't do it. <laughs> or I do it my way, which is scary. You know, my way is scary. So, you know, things started to change there. And I have a relationship with my family today that took a long time to forge. It did not happen overnight because I caused a lot of harm there. Um, and even the things that I had to deal with with my family that were justifiably things that they did wrong that hurt me, when it came down to it, and I'm to getting into my amends, and I have to make amends for trying to kill my father. I have to sit down and make amends to him for that. And I think, if he forgives me for this, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness, how can I hang on to this stuff that I want to hang on and hold over his head that he did wrong to me? It's not about that. I need to forgive. Um, I went... Uh, did an inventory, found out I had lots of character defects, you know. First one I did, I had a few character defects because I got sober and thought, I only really hurt myself. I didn't really hurt anyone else. And I believed that. Once again, you know, alcoholic disease centers in our mind. It's scary. And um, so I did my inventory and learned that anyone that came in contact with me, I hurt. I hurt a lot of people. I hurt a lot of people I don't know. I mean, my free time when I was drinking was like harming people at the mall, you know. We used to open up hamburgers and stuff. People would be walking on the second floor. They had like 15 cent McDonald's hamburger days. And Kim and I used to do this as a matter of fact. We'd go get a bunch of hamburgers and we'd unwrap them and we'd throw them at people, you know. And uh, 
that's what I thought was fun. I caused everyone harm that came in touch with me, but I got sober and thought I didn't. So it's like, thank God for the inventory. Two, if I don't know what's wrong with me, I don't have anything to change. You know, if you're my problem, I don't have anything to change, I'm never going to feel better. So I took this inventory and I got to see what was wrong. Um, and I can't do it without God. You know, I can't change myself. My sponsor can't change me. I'm responsible for my own program. i got to take my own actions, but I need God's help because it's all about God today, and it's all about getting that relationship with God today. Um, and I was able to go make amends, and I was horrified. did not want to make amends. I stole from everybody. I lived off Valley West Mall. I'd just go down every little store, and I had thousands of dollars of amends to make. Um, and I was horrified, but I'd pray and ask God to help me do it. And even though I was afraid, I did it because I was told that, you know, we don't have to not be afraid to do it, that what courage was was being afraid and doing it anyway. You know, it's not the absence of fear, which I thought, well, when I get courage, when the fear goes away, I'll do it. It's like, uh-uh, I did it anyway. And some of them went really well and some of them didn't go so well, but I'm not doing it. I'm doing it because I want to stay sober and I want to change and I want to try and clear my side of the street. Um, and it's like, thank God for the 10th step, too, because another thing I thought at a, a few years of sobriety, earlier in my sobriety, um, everyone was charged with the solution. You know, get sober, life gets better, we're happy, it's great, jump on. that's all I heard. And I didn't hear people making mistakes anymore. And I was doing stuff still. I'd still lie and I'd still do make some mistakes and mess up and, and I wasn't going to tell you you know, because you guys had it all together, and I wasn't going to share that. And um, what happened is I, again, got really sick and uncomfortable. We're only as sick as your secrets. You hear that. And, and it's like, thank God for the 10 step, because it would not be there if I was not going to continue to mess up and need to take my inventory. We did not get perfect. And I had to do that, and I had to fess up. And I still do that today. You know, this last year I had a really wild... In, in the middle of all this stuff, as I'm going, God, I hate you, for some reason I had these bouts of anger in which I'd like scream at people and um, and hop on my apartment floor because the people underneath were making me mad. And, and, um, and at work, <laughs> and at work, this is bad. And this is something that's important for me too. I'm going to share this one last thing. Um, this guy I worked with was the production manager and, and I was showing him a problem and he said it was the customer's fault, but it wasn't, you know. So, and he goes to walk away and um, and I just flip out, you know, because we need to get this fixed. It's our fault. It's not the customer's fault. But So how do I react to this? I'm following him down the hallway screaming, that's going to be our motto when we go out of business. It's the customer's fault, you know. And I was just on a roll. I mean, I'm usually, when I get mad, I can't think of good sarcastic comments. But for some reason, it's like, I was there, and I'm following them all through the plant, and I'm going, and people are sticking their heads out of the office and looking at me. And, and it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Well, what's worse now? Okay, because you got your alcoholic, and it's like, I knew I shouldn't have did that. But um, my boss and the other supervisor, head person of the company, um, pat me on the back and said, good job. You know, you were right. You know, and they ended up firing this guy because he, you know, that's his deal. But they're like, you know, yeah, you have a good, you know, so I'm getting congratulated for being a shit, you know. <laughs> thinking, yeah, you know, good for this part, you know, but I can't do that. 
I cannot do that. I have to be honest with my sponsor. I have to be honest with God. And for me, I want to be honest with you guys. I still do crazy stuff. What I had to do was go back and make amends to that guy and say I am wrong. And part of me making amends is not saying I'm sorry. You know, I am wrong. This is what I did wrong. What can I do to make that right? And even if they don't tell me anything, what I need to do to make that right is live different. What I need to do to make that right is every time I see that man to say, hi, how are you doing today, and tell him something nice about him. You know, I need to live different. It doesn't change if I don't live different, act different, do something different. I can apologize or even make amends and not follow through all I want, and nothing's going to be different. Um, so that was my last big deal, and uh, I haven't yelled at anyone else for the rest of the year. <laughs> you know, thank God for the 10th step, because I know stuff's still going to happen. And the thing is, if my ego gets so big that I think I have this much sobriety, or I have this and this, and I cannot tell anyone because it'll be embarrassing that I did this. I can't live like that. I need to tell on myself, and I need to be honest. And the reason the 10th step's there is because I'm going to make mistakes. The thing is, is I'm going to be willing to do something different. The other big thing is working with others. I love it. I love, I mean, nothing makes me happier than working with someone else. And sometimes I get lazy. I'm thinking, oh, I don't have time. You know, well, I forget it's not my time. This is God's time. I'm living on borrowed time because my time killed me. I should be dead. I should be with all my other friends in prison or dead. And I am here today for some reason. And it's not my time. It's God's time. And it's God's will. And that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So I need to be helping other people. I have a house today. I lived in a sewage tunnel. My husband and I have a home. We own it. You know, who would have ever thought that? But it's God's home. You know, I would not have a home left to my own devices. It's God's home, and you're welcome in our home. You know, um, it's not my stuff. That's not what matters. You know, I remember in college I got on the dean's list. Well, I dropped out of school. I got back in school. Didn't like it, but I graduated. It helped that I had no friends. Um, it made me study. Um, so I went to college. Who would have ever thought? And I got on the dean's list, and I called Kim, and I was all excited because look what I did, me, dean's list. And uh, she said, it's nice that God and AA could have did that for you. <laughs> it was me, you know. But it wasn't because I was a high school dropout, and before I dropped out, I had Ds and Fs. It was not. It's God and it's AA and it's you guys that allow me to do things that every day are little miracles in my life because I am unable to do that. I am unable to do that. My life is good today when I remember to be grateful, and it's my perception. It can be your fault. It can be, you know, I can take responsibility and I can change and grow. And the steps work. I need to take the steps. And I need to continue to do that and continue to change and grow. It's never, it's like we're on a bicycle on a hill and we need to keep pedaling. Because every once in a while I think, I'm doing good. I'm just going to coast for a while. Well, I'm going up a hill. So when you coast, you go backwards. I need to keep going forward. I need to keep doing. I need to keep striving because I'll never be perfect. There's always room for improvement. So I need to keep on my little bike pedaling towards that. And once again, I want to thank you guys for having me here. And I'm going to close. Thanks.